Our Father, we again come to you in prayer, asking for you to speak through your word. We pray for your spirit to work on us, performing a recreative work in our lives and hearts through the preaching of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look on the front of the order of worship, you'll see our mission as a church, the cover. It says, worshiping God together, giving witness to his love. Giving witness to his love. Worshiping God and then giving witness to his love for us, uh, both within the congregation and beyond. Now, two years ago, almost to the day, uh, we met for a Bible study. We were looking at the book of Ephesians, but we actually paused from Ephesians and we considered the whole topic of worship. We explained what in the world it is we're doing as we confess sins and call to worship and confess our faith and recite things and receive a benediction. We went through, it was kind of like a practice run through worship. And we explained the Bible's view of worship. It was a really, it was a really kind of fundamental um, teaching of what it is we're doing when we come here every Sunday, what the purpose is. And here was the thesis, and this is the Bible's thesis on worship. We become like the things that we worship. We become what we worship, you might say. We become what we worship. And what I want us to do this morning as we consider this episode in the life of Jacob is consider, focus on what false worship does to us. You know, Jacob and Laban, this is interesting, Jacob and Laban are very similar people, remember? Jacob's a trickster a schemer. His, his, his name means heel. You might say supplanter. He's the kind of guy that, that backstabs, like he comes from behind to grab, like sort of dishonest, comes in the back door. And we met Laban a few weeks ago, and guess what? Laban's a lot like him. In, in fact, Laban, Jacob has met his match in Laban. Laban tricks him into marrying Leah. He's constantly changing the rules of the game in his favor, constantly changing wages. And yet, there's an important difference between Jacob and Laban, very important difference, and it's the object of their worship. Jacob is worshiping the one true living God, and as this Jacob's story goes along, we find his life deepening. Laban, on the other hand, worships, as we learn in this passage in, in last week, these little household gods, these idols. And we see him becoming, well, we'll see today, almost like a, becoming more dull, not deepening, but flattening. He's flattening as a person, as a human. And that makes all the difference. See, worship, what we worship sets the course of our lives. If we worship the one true living God, we're on the fast track, the course, maybe not the fast track, the track, Sometimes it feels slow, patience is involved, but the track towards life. If we worship any piece of creation, we die. That's the end. That's where that path leads. Okay? We become like the things that we worship. And we're seeing that in Laban's life. He's, he's becoming numb. He's becoming dull. He's on the track towards death. And eventually his life will just kind of become chaff that the wind blows away, weightless, Weightless because he's in orbit around his own self-love, Laban is. So really, there's, there's two points this morning that we're going to consider. 
the object of Laban's worship and the fruits of his worship. So those are the two points, the, the object of Laban's worship and the fruits of his worship. But let's do a quick review here. God has called Abraham from all the peoples of the world. Uh, God has called Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. You will, be, you will be blessed, and your nation will be a blessing to all nations. So God, Abraham walks with God into this unknown land and is a sojourner, a stranger, an alien. Miraculously, God provides Abraham and Sarah Isaac. The, the promises are reiterated to Isaac. Isaac also has trouble having children. Prays to God, and God blesses him with twins, Jacob and Esau. And so Jacob has been, uh, he's he's stolen, if you remember, the blessing from his older brother, Esau. And now he's run to the land of Laban, one, to escape his brother who wants to murder him, and two, to find a wife away from the Canaanites in another land, his father's homeland, his grandfather's homeland, Abraham. So he's there for 20 years with Laban, and it's been an oppressive 20 years because Laban is a schemer, a plotter. He's been tricking Jacob. He's not been kind to Jacob. And after 20 years under Laban's scheme, scheming and plotting, Jacob and his wives bolt. They leave. And they leave while, while Laban is shearing his sheep. That was a very opportune time for them to leave because that was a very involved process. It was harvest season, harvesting the, the wool, right, of, of, of their flocks. And so it was all hands on deck. It was a big job. It was, you know, 14-hour work days. And that's their moment. They escape and they run. And that's where, we've, that's where the, we, we uh, have left off here this morning. And in the escape we see Laban's object of worship. What is Laban worshiping? Look at verse 19. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Now, we've seen Rachel and Leah do not like their father. They've said he treats us like a foreigner. He's taken all of our inheritance, our trust, He's devoured. He spent it on himself. We want out, remember? They, they say, Jacob, we're, Rachel and Leah, we've never agreed on anything. But we agree on this. We want to leave Laban, our father, the oppression that he pr- pr- uh, creates in our lives. We want out. So here's the thing. You're making an escape. You have very limited time. You've got to make haste. So why in the world does Rachel take this enormous risk to go into her father's tent and steal the household gods? She risks a lot. Theft was was severely punished in this place, in this time. But theft of religious items, that could bring with it death. The Code of Hammurabi says that if if anyone steals objects from from a religious worship setting, the penalty is death. So to steal gods was a grave thing. Maybe she wants divine favor. Is that what she's after? Protection for their journey? Protection from the household gods? Possibly, but I don't think that's the case. And you know why? She's sitting on the gods. That was, that was disrespectful. If you believe those gods would provide favor for you, you would treat them with the utmost respect, even if stolen. You wouldn't sit, sit on, you wouldn't desecrate them, and that's what she does. 
I believe Rachel is out to, this, she's doing this for spite. She's kind of given her father a little, a fun little send-off, like, bye, we're, we're out. I'm taking what is very important to you, your household gods, and I'm taking off with them. And the reason it was effective is because the gods, these gods, these household gods were so important to Laban. He references, last week he referenced by divination, these gods told him that Jacob was blessed by, by the Lord, by Yahweh. Um, and so Laban has, has consults these gods, he looks to them for guidance in life. Now the word used to describe the gods is terapim, it shows up about 15 times in the Old Testament. And they're, 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 they would have been these small, they didn't have to be small, but in this case, because they fit in a saddle, um, they're small, they're probably like the size of like the little G.I. Joes that I used to play with. You know, just little figurines. And what Laban is doing by worshiping these idols is he's following the default human position when it comes to worship. Last week we said that um, Faith begins with God, right? God initiates uh, faith in the life of a believer. It begins with him. That if God doesn't come and grab us, we, we don't believe in God. So the question is, what do we do? If God doesn't grab us, what happens? Well, we follow Laban's lead. We whip up idols of our own making. Remember what Abraham was doing before God called him and, and put faith in his heart? He was worshiping the moon. He was a moon worshiper, a pagan in Ur. But you may say, well, but wait a second. We don't have any idols. So how can you say that? There's a lot of Christians that don't have idols. Not so fast. We have what John Calvin called idols of the heart. Calvin says the the human heart and mind is a perpetual forge of idols. Constantly whipping up, making idols, idols of the heart. Idols that, 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 that we, our heart wants to set itself not on its creator, but on a piece of creation, some aspect of creation. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about idolatry. Listen, it's not, just a, it's not just a little character. It's not just like a little figurine thing that we bow down to. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones says. An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that holds my life and my devotion, anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to be vital, anything that is essential to me, an idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. It's anything that moves and rouses and attracts and stimulates me. That's an idol. An idol is anything that I worship, anything to which I give much of my time and my attention and my energy, and my money, anything that holds a controlling position in my life is an idol. Paul explains the progression of idolatry in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. But there Paul says that God made himself known in creation, but we, apart from God initiating faith, we have exchange the truth about God for a lie, and we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. He says, he says, verses 22 and 23 of Romans 1, claiming to be wise, 
They became fools and exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. Why would we do that? Why does humanity do that? Here's why. We were created to set our hearts upon our creator, to land there. The, the St. Augustine said the desires of the human heart are infinite, and therefore they can't be satisfied by anything finite. But here's the problem. Remember, what, remember the posture of Adam and Eve after they ate the fruit? What were they doing in the bushes? Hiding, covering themselves. They didn't want to confront God. Their, their sin put them in this alienated relationship where they had to hide. That was their response. And so we want for our hearts to go to God, but we have the posture of Adam and Eve. We really, we, we, we don't want God because of our own sin. And so we turn from God and we look around at creation trying to find something that can give weight to our lives outside of ourselves. And we, it's like we, we hook, you know, we, we, we cast our, our, our line towards whatever we think it is. Maybe it's money, maybe it's power, maybe it's sex, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's what you fill in the blank. Something to give our life's meaning, and we connect ourselves to that. So how do you know what like, your idol is? Tim Keller has, has written a lot on this topic and spoken a lot, and a lot of what I'm saying actually is derived from some of his, his material on it. But he gives three diagnostic tests to, to discern what your idols are. The first is the emotional test. What is it that drives you crazy? What is it that makes you angry? What pushes your button? What, is, it, is it when like somebody else besides you is the life at the party? Then maybe underneath that is this God of approval. You want to be the life of the party. And you're upset because you're not and they are. Another test he gives is the dream test. What is it that you dream about? What is it that you fantasize about? What is it that you think about when there's nothing else to think about? Do you, do you set your heart on the glory and beauty and perfection of God? Or does your mind kind of wander to a certain place? Maybe it's uh, romance, or maybe it's a workplace success, or maybe it's the possibility of a vacation far, far away. Where does your mind, is there a place you normally go when there's nothing else to think about? There may be an idol there. Another diagnostic is to look at your transaction history in your bank account. What is it you're spending your money on? Is it fancy, fancy food? Um, is it fancy clothes? Is it all going into savings? You know? And here's the thing. There's both surface idols and there's idols underneath the surface idol. So here, here's an example. Uh, money can be a surface idol. And two people can relate to money in very different ways, but both have, for them, both money, money is an idol. So for one person, money's an idol. They, they love money, they want money, and they, they buy luxury brands, and they buy the nicest clothes, and they buy a really nice house in a really nice neighborhood, and there's sort of, underneath the, the, the money, pride is the, is, the under, is the idol underneath the surface idol of money. For another person, they're driving like a Honda Civic with 300,000 miles. They have a modest house. They, they shop thrift. 
but they're pouring all their money into these savings accounts, and they're stingy, and they're not generous with it. Both, you wouldn't think the one person had an, was making an idol out of money, but they are. But it's the, the, the God under the God, the surface idols, money, the God under the God, security. That's what they're really after. Money is a, is a tool to make their life feel more secure. In the case of the other person, money's a tool, a surface idol for the real idol, which is pride, demonstrating wealth to others. Now, we're all tempted to this, to idolatry. And just to give you an example of how attractive idolatry is, even when God reaches out to Israel and says, come, come to me, be my people, follow me, and they follow him. What are they, what's the story of Israel's history? What do they keep doing? Turning to idols constantly. There was an archaeological dig recently, and some more critical archaeologists were trying to kind of cast a shadow of doubt over the scriptures because there were idols all over these Jewish temples that they were finding in, in the Jewish synagogue, synagogues, places of worship. And some more conservative biblical scholars said, of course, have you read the prophets? The prophets are all about idolatry infiltrating the worship of Yahweh. It's an attraction. It's an ongoing attraction. And one of the reasons it's so attractive is because it gives us a measure of control. We make the idol. We, we, we feed the idol. We give the idol a little offering of grain. And then they, the idol then gives us a great harvest. It's, there's, a, there's a relationship of control. We relate to the idol like we relate to other people. It's God in our image, right? And so they, they act like we act. So if we scratch their back, they're going to scratch ours, and we can exercise a measure of control. If we are nice enough to them, we leverage power over them and can get what we want from the idols. That's, that's the belief, and that's the attraction. So... Idol, the household gods, these idols, are Laban's object of worship. But I think an important question, the second question we want to consider is what are the fruits? What are the fruits of idolatry in Laban's life and in a person's life? We see that Laban pursues Jacob for um, seven days. And the language of pursuit, that's military language. Like Laban has taken up arms. He's the thunder of hoofs as they, for seven days, the clank of swords, they're going. They may not destroy Jacob, but they, they're going to, that's the, they're ready to, should they want to. And on his way, on Laban's way, God comes to him and says, don't harm Jacob. And so finally, Laban makes his way to Jacob and says, why did you leave? And he also brings this charge to which a charge that Jacob's completely oblivious to. And that is that somebody in Jacob's camp stole Laban's precious household gods. And look at what Jacob says in response to Laban's charge when they meet. Verse 31 Jacob said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. That's why I left. And then he says, verse 32, as for the gods, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. Go ahead, search for them. If you find them, whoever took them, death, right? Remember, this, this, is, this is the standard sort of penalty for stealing gods, death. And Jacob, Jacob says, take their life. 
In the presence of our kinsmen, he's, he's, Jacob's saying, like, this is like a court setting. We've got witnesses. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours, and it's yours. Take it. But little does Jacob know, his precious Rachel, the love of his life, is the one who stole the gods. He's putting a death sentence on the love of his life. And so the tension of the story mounts. Look at verse 33. So Laban goes into Jacob's tent. No idols there. And then he goes into Leah's tent and then the tent of the two female servants. But he did not find the idols there. And then he left Leah's tent, building suspense, and he entered Rachel's tent. And now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. And Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And Rachel said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women, women is upon me. And so he searched, but did not find the household gods. Rachel conceals the gods, right? And in the process, she desecrates them. Desecrates them. In fact, she assigns the Bible's value to them through what she does. This is what the, the Bible says these idols are worthless, they're trash. The book of Leviticus says that a discharge of, of blood makes anything that it touches unclean. Even, it even specifies to sit on something during a time of discharge is to desecrate the thing, to make it unclean. And that's what the story is saying, that these, these gods are worthless. The God, idols that we construct are worthless. What, what did Rachel do to them? She stole them. One commentator said there's, there's a little bit of humor to this. There's an apologetic. The, the, the biblical author is saying the gods of this world can be godnapped. Like we've had a godnapping. Somebody stole the gods. And then Rachel's sitting on them. Can the Lord in, he in heaven be sat upon? No, but these gods can. They can be stolen. They can be sat upon. They can be desecrated. They, they, they essentially become toilet paper, a receptacle for bodily discharge. And that is, what the Bible, that is how the Bible views them, as worthless. But here's the question, though. How do they affect Laban? How, how do these idols affect Laban? The first thing I want us to see is they have a numbing effect on a person. They have a numbing effect. Greg Beale says that, um, you know, throughout the scriptures, there's this language of sensory malfunction. Uh, you see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus says to his disciples, having ears, do you not hear? Having eyes, do you not see? The prophets are loaded with this language of, of, being, of having hands but not being able to feel, having feet but not walking. Sensory malfunction. You've got sense, senses, receptors, but they're not working. They're not functioning right. And Beale says, every time you see that language show up, you know what's right next to it? The worship of idols. That this is what idolatry does to a person. And the most explicit spot where we see that is Psalm 115. Listen to what it says. You can turn there if you like. It's verses six and five, six, uh, five through 8 of Psalm 115. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, 
the work of human hands. The idols have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. They have feet, but they don't walk. They don't make a sound in their throat. And listen to what verse 8 says. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Do you hear, do you hear the principle? The principle is we become what we worship. We become like the thing that we worship. And at the same time that, that Jacob, again, is orienting his life around the one true living God, Jacob is becoming more alive. And at the time when Laban, when we're beginning to see what Laban's object of worship is, he's becoming more numb. And we see that in verse 34. It says, Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. Now, the Hebrew word there, felt, it's an interesting choice. It's a unique choice. And I think something's trying to be said through the choice of that word. It's masas. Every instance of the term it's the blind groping in, the, in, you know, in what amounts to the dark. It's the blind groping in the, in the dark. You see it in the book of Job. We see it in Deuteronomy. And remember Isaac? Remember when, I, when Jacob was stealing the blessing? And Jacob put his hands up and he put hair on them to trick his father? Do you remember what Isaac did? He massaged Jacob's hands. He felt, blindly felt, and believed it to be Esau. And here's Laban. He's, he has eyes and hands, but he can't see or feel about. He's missing what's right under his nose, his household gods. He's groping through the tent in futility, and he's also restless and anxious. And this is where idolatry leads. It leads us to fumble and stumble our way through life, seeking what constantly eludes us. The gods, they give soaring promises, these gods, but they don't ever deliver. In that regard, so they, they numb us, right? Laban's moving around feeling, but he can't feel or see what, where the gods are. That's what the idols do. They numb us. But the second thing they do is they don't deliver on what they promise. We swing and miss with idolatry. We swing and miss. David Foster Wallace, a... Um, a writer who um, committed suicide about 12 or 14 years ago. Uh, he, not long before he committed suicide, and to, to my, he was not a Christian. I don't know exactly his beliefs, but he, w- he wasn't a Christian. But he gave a, a talk, and that talk is widely circulated because uh, it's, it, the, the insight is so perceptive into idolatry and what it does, how it doesn't deliver on its promises. Listen to what he says. Again, not a Christian. Everybody worships. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus or Allah or Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or just something big, the advantage of that is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap your real meaning in life, you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, 
you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid. You'll feel a fraud. You'll always feel on the verge of being found out. See, no matter what we set our hearts on in worship, it eludes us. The very thing that we're after is the very thing that we, we miss. And Laban here swings and misses, right? I mean, the, the household gods are there. He's right. He just he doesn't find them. And that's how it is. The thing we seek in the idol is never found. The idol might as well be lost. It doesn't deliver. And then uh, Jacob, in verse 36, Laban comes out empty-handed. And, of course, now Jacob feels totally vindicated. You know, he's been rehearsing. In verses 36 and following, he, he says he berates and speaks with anger towards Laban. He's been rehearsing this speech for the last 20 years out working in the fields. He unloads, and I would love to go into it, but we don't have time to, to go into what he says in these verses. Um, the, the final thing I want us to see, though, about idolatry is that it makes, us, it makes us futile in our thinking. Or if you prefer, it makes us stupid. Idols make us stupid, and we see that here in this passage. The, Bi- the Bible says good worship is fundamental to good thinking. That the fear of the Lord is the, it's just the beginning of wisdom, right, the Proverbs say. Bad worship, on the other hand, destroys good thinking. It makes us fools. Remember what Paul, back in Romans chapter 1, he says that uh, becoming futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. That's what idolatry does. It darkens our hearts. It makes us futile in our thought. It makes our brains go dumb. False worship makes us stupid. Tim Keller says that, the, uh, that idols create what he calls a delusional field, like a whole delusional field, a whole set of assumptions and false definitions of success and failure, which are distortions of reality brought on by the idol. And here we see Laban is talking like a fool. It really is gibberish. It's, it's, we'll see this in a moment. It's, it's actually kind of comical. It's gibberish. It's, Laban is totally detached from reality. So let's just see, let's see what he says. Look at verse 26. Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you tricked me and drove away my daughters like captives of the sword? Okay, first of all, are are these his daughters as though Jacob has no connection to them? As though Jacob has kidnapped them? No, Jacob married these women fair and square. Right? Maybe not fair, but he, 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 well, not fair from Laban's standpoint, but he got, he did the time to get these wives. They're his wives. And did, did uh, Laban take them, or did Jacob take them by the sword as captives? No. Remember? They seemed almost more energetic about leaving than Jacob did. They said, yes, we want to leave our father. And he's, he, he's, he's assuming that Jacob is taking them like captives. And then, and then look at this, verse 27. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you? I, Jacob, I could have sent you home with one of my feasts, with uh, mirth and songs and tambourine and lyre. Remember the last feast that Laban threw for Jacob? Remember how that ended? Leah, 
You think Jacob, did you think that the idea of one of Laban's feasts has any attraction whatsoever to Jacob? Look at, look at verse 43. It says, Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. Again, he's, he's talking as though Jacob has no connection to them. These daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks, remember that was the subject of last week, Jacob getting these flocks. Laban did everything he could to make Jacob fail. Jacob succeeded, and Laban's still calling Jacob's flocks his own. He's, he's, he's delusional. These flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine, Laban says. And then Laban and Jacob make a peaceful end to all this through a covenant. They make a covenant with one another. Look at verses 44. It says, um, they say, come now, let's, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob, verse 45, took a stone, he set it up as a pillar, and Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mitzpah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God as witness between you and me. Did you hear what Laban said? Okay, God's watching you, Jacob. If you oppress my daughters, who's oppressing Laban's daughters based on last week? Laban. They said he treats us like a foreigner. He's stolen our inheritance. Laban's the oppressor. And he's like, we better not oppress my daughters. Totally clueless to what he's inflicted upon his own daughters there in verse 50. In fact, Jacob is their rescuer in this whole situation. But it gets even better. Look at verse 51. Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between me and you. Did Laban set the heap, the pillar? No, look at, look at verse 45 and 46. Jacob and Jacob's kinspeople built the pillar. And here's Laban saying, well, I've made this pillar right here, so we're going to come around and gather around. He didn't make it. He's, Laban's off his rocker. He, he's, he's delusional. He's lost it. And that's what idolatry does. You see, Jacob is being molded by God, as Jacob leans into God, and Laban is being molded by the gods, the household gods, the idols. It's making him numb. They're not delivering, and they make, they, they make a person, they make Laban futile in his thinking, right? Remember the thesis? We become like the things we worship. That's the thesis. Now, the question, though, is how do we avoid idols. If our hearts are idol factories, how do we avoid them? How do we crush them? Right? Because destroy them we must. If we don't destroy them, they will destroy us. They will make us numb and they will make us lose the very thing we're after and they will eventually bring us to our our death. They will slowly numb us until we become like them, dead, lifeless. So how do we crush them? Why, why do you think God considers idols so wicked? 
Because no human thing, no little human created thing, no piece of creation can contain the glory, can capture, can hold the glory and beauty and magnificence of God. That's the problem with idolatry. God can't be contained in a little object. And yet, the scriptures speak of Jesus as God's idol, right? He's the, he's the image, the representation of the invisible God. And Paul says in Colossians that the fullness of God, all of God could be contained, was well pleased to dwell in him. That all of a sudden, here was a, was a person that we could see and touch and that could contain the glory of God. The fullness of, of deity was pleased to dwell in him. Remember David Foster Wallace, idols will eat you alive. They'll take and take and take. They consume, they consume your ability to feel, to see, to hear. They take your mind. That's what they do. They take, take, take. What does God do? What does God do? He gives. He loves. He pours himself out. What did we do back to God? When, when, when God showed up, when the fullness of God dwelt in, in, in the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ, what did we do with God's representation, his idol on earth? We did what Rachel did. We, we desecrated him. We stripped him. We mocked him. We ripped him apart. We pinned him to a tree and said, we don't want you. Remember what he did? Remember, remember what he called his desecration? He called it his glory. That's what he said about the cross. It was his glory. And you think, well, how could that possibly be his glory? Because on the cross, we saw what God is really like. He is a God who gives, who pours himself out. The idols promise the world, don't they? They're so attractive, and we think that they're just going to deliver everything. And we look at them and we think, yes, that's where my hope is. And what do they do when we get inside it? They take and they take and they take. And then we look at the glory of God, the cross, and we think, there's nothing for me in that. You, it looks, it doesn't look attractive. And yet you get inside of it and you see Jesus promised that there's life there. And life abundant. Because it's where God gives us his life for us so that we might live, so that we might become alive. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of our Lord, are, listen to this, we're beholding the glory of our Lord. What happens to us? We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That as we behold Jesus, we become like Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. We become what we worship. That's the principle. We become what we worship. And so this is why every, Taylor's carefully selecting songs that all point us to Jesus. The liturgy points us to Jesus. The sacraments point us to Jesus. I'm trying to preach every week in a way that points us to Jesus. That's the objective, to see Jesus, to behold Jesus, so that we might be transformed into his image. Because here's the thing. You will behold something. Laban beheld something. We all will behold Something. Something will capture our hearts in worship. Worship Jesus. It's the only place where you can find life. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have not left us to our idols, that you have not left us to the worship of 
all sorts of created things, but you've turned our attention, our hearts, our minds um, to Christ, and you're renewing us. You're renewing our minds, not making them grow numb and dull. You're enlivening our senses. You're making us more sensitive to suffering in the world. You're making us more capable of enjoying your gifts in creation. You're you're making us more human because we're looking uh, as we look to Christ, and so we pray that that would happen as we continue to worship uh, the living, resurrected Lord Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.